Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your word, your timeless word, that shows us what's right, shows us what's wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. Because, Lord, that's our desire, that we would follow you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and that we would learn to love you as you love us. Lord, may you be exalted in this body, this congregation, in the body of Christ, universal. So, Lord, as we sit at your feet, feed your sheep today. And all God's people said, Amen. As we come to the book of Colossians, I've titled this first message, The Gospel Truth. See, along with the book of Hebrews, Colossians is the most Christ-centered book in the Bible. It's here in the book of Colossians that Paul stresses that supremacy of the person of Christ, the completeness of salvation. And this was in order to deal with the growing heresy that was within the church at Colossae. Paul makes it clear that the believer's identity is in Christ alone. In fact, we identify with his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, which is the very foundation of the believer's physical and spiritual life. See, Christ is the the head of all principality and power. He is the Lord of creation. He's the author of reconciliation. He is the basis for the believer's hope, the source of the believer's power for that new life. He is the believer's redeemer and reconciler. As the creator, he is also the sustainer of all things. He is the head of the church. He's the God-man who has been resurrected, and he is the all-sufficient Savior. And he is all that you and I ever need. See, as Paul writes this letter, we're going to begin with verses 1 and 2. We see the, the salutation. It begins with the word Paul, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, letters today have the sender's name at the end, but wasn't so in Paul's day. It came at the beginning. It was followed by a greeting that, in this case, it's from Paul and it's to the church, the church that's in Colossae. He's greeting them. Paul does not come before the Colossians simply as a private individual, but notice, but as the apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul first shows up in the Bible as a person of Saul. In fact, I'd like to read from Acts 7, 58, and then into verse 1 of chapter 8. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witness laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul was 
in hearty agreement with putting him to death, referring to Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, that's in chapter 7. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. It's interesting when we think about that early church, they were given the Great Commission, but they just didn't go. God allowing that persecution to come would use it to drive out the believers out into the world so that they would bring the good news, the gospel truth to those that did not know it. Yet those apostles would remain faithful in Jerusalem. They would raise up a a new generation. They would continue the work that God had called them to do. But in contrast, there's this man, Saul, who his name is going to become Paul after his conversion. Enthusiastically, this man, Saul, endeavored to stamp out the Christian faith. It's in Acts chapter 9 that Paul's on his way to Damascus with papers to, to take Christians, put them in prison. And yet he was struck down with a bright light, sincere, thinking he's doing the work of God, God stopped him in his tracks. He was born again on that road to Damascus, and he was changed forever. Paul would become this man, Saul, become Paul, who would have such an influence in Christianity. Except for Jesus, no one had ever influenced the development of the early church more than Paul. In fact, he was the foremost apologist for the Gentile missions. He was the most eloquent defender of the centrality of the Jewish traditions. That is the scripture and the deity and the morality for his predominantly Gentile churches. And Paul, interestingly, pins 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. See, Paul was equipped and called by God to be a great missionary, a church builder. And just as Paul is equipped and called, you and I are being equipped as we get into the word, the Holy Spirit takes that word and works in our life. We're called, we're set apart as saints. We've talked about that before. And we too are given a a missionary calling. I appreciate the most about Paul was his heart, a heart for God and, and really for the people. Let me show you in Acts 21, verse 13 and 14. It says, Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking that the will of the Lord be done. See, Paul was being warned not to go. The persecution would be there. And yet, nothing would stop him. Nothing would stop him from serving the Lord Jesus Christ and bringing the good news, that gospel truth to the people. In fact, it grieved his heart. He says, weeping and breaking my heart. He he knew this is what God had called him to do. And, and they were trying not really to hinder the work of God, but that's exactly what they were doing. Finally, they realized that he was determined. And what was he determined? To do the will of the Lord. Look with me in 
Again, in verse 1, we see that word Paul and the apostle of Jesus Christ. And notice it's by the will of God. Well, I want to call your attention to just that word apostle. There are three types of apostles. First of all, in the book of Hebrews, you find the apostle. Jesus Christ is the apostle. He is what we call the A-apostle. He was sent by the Father into the world to die upon the cross for you and me. Second, we see the, the B apostles. Those are the, the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They did miracles and signs, and, and, and God did those to authenticate the work and who Jesus Christ was. And we're the C apostles in that sense that we're missionaries. We're also, again, equipped and called and were sent out and were given that great commission. What is that message, that good news that we are to bring? Well, let me read from Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous, notice, for good works. See, we have been called and equipped and sent, as I mentioned earlier in that great commission. In fact, that's what Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This is the message that in, in Titus that I I spoke of. It it is is a life set apart for God, and we are to be zealous for good works. That's the calling. This is the call of Paul, but it's also a call for you and me. Also in verse one, we see that name Timothy, our our brother. Timothy is also pronounced, you'll hear it from time to time, Timotheus. Now, his name means honored of God or worshiping God or valued of God. Names were significant in those days. When you had a child, you would oftentimes name it with the hope that you have or there'd be something unique about them. Today, we go and pick a list, what's cute, what sounds good, to be different from others. And we don't always have that, that meaning of the words. I searched my own name, and in a Scottish baby name it is, in the Scottish, the meaning of the name Ronald is mighty counselor and ruler, and that doesn't quite fit for me. They've taken on a meaning that's different than it was to the Hebrew people. See, the only name that really matters for me is the name that Jesus Christ has given you and me. 
I think there's a name here on earth we're given, but we also know there's a new name in the book of Revelation. It talks about the name that he's given to each of us now is the name Christian. See, they were called Christians first in Antioch because they were like Christ. There's no greater name that you could ever be called on this earth than Christian, that that you identify with Christ himself, that the world looks at you and they identify you with Christ. The greatest honor of all is our identification with Jesus, who gave us his all. Well, this young man is from Lystra. He's the son of Eunice, a Jewess, and by a Greek father who probably was dead when Paul wrote and first visited his home in Acts 16. But there was something unique about him. And the uniqueness, I believe, is always what God instills in the person, the person that he's equipping, the person that he is calling Look with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20 through 22. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character. That is a son and his father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy truly honored Paul as a, as a, as a child. He was a spiritual child honoring and following and, and following in the very footsteps, learning from him, putting himself under. But more than that, he honored God. And that's what Christians, as Christians are, we, we are to honor God. We are to be like him and want to be like him and want to be with him. And that's what was true in the, in the church of Colossae. They were those in verse 2. Notice, to the saints, those who are really born again, those who had been set apart for God. And Paul says, to the saints and faithful brethren. So there were some that were being sanctified, being made holy, and they were faithful brethren. And Paul saw what God was doing in them. He saw that he was instilling in them that heart. And he saw that their lives were hidden in Christ Jesus. They too could identify with Christ. Yet in that mist, there was a heresy growing. Just as the parable of the wheat and tear grow side by side, there was this heresy that was growing in. He's writing to the saints, warning them, encouraging them to be faithful and continue in that faithfulness to Christ. And notice, every believer is in Christ. And notice, these believers he's speaking to are in Colossae, yet it applies to every one of us in Colossae. Colossae was a city in Pergia, uh, situated on a rocky ridge overlooking the, the Lycus River, a branch of the Meander River. It's 12 miles uh, above uh, Laodicea with Laodicea and Heropolis, uh, in a triangle shape, in 110 miles from Ephesus. And they were all on this major trade route. At one time, the, the city of Colossae was the, the main city. It was the big city, and, and yet these cities worked together. They were even at, at times dependent on one another. But by this time that Paul has come, Laodicea is the prominent city. Later on, Laodicea would be destroyed and Colossae would be destroyed by an earthquake. And, and that's in the book of Revelation. When you look at the background of Laodicea, 
Paul writes again to this church. It's there in verse 2. He possibly visited on his third missionary journey. The town today is in ruins, yet there's a little village still there. Now, who planted these churches? That's one of the questions that we often ask. Some say that Paul never even went there, and, and we don't know. The Bible's not clear. There's a debating over the words, but notice what Colossians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 say. A papyrus, who is one of you, a, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for, for you in prayer, that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. See, he was their spiritual leader. He heard this gospel truth. He was responsible for bringing it to them. Just as verse 12 says there, he was a bondservant of Christ. He was led by Christ. He checked in daily for those orders. In fact, Epaphras wanted to greet them and, and greeted them you know, as he loved them passionately, had great zeal for them. And he labored fervently in prayer. And so often we forget that prayer is, is not just shooting up a few quick prayers. Certainly when Peter was going down for the count, when he was going under in the water, he cried out, Lord, save me. And God does listen to those. But oftentimes prayer is laboring. It's, it's fervently laboring in prayer. It is work. It is hard, and it is one of the greatest works a believer can do once he's a believer is labor and prayer, seeking and crying out to God, crying out for people to grow and mature and become everything that they would be, cry out for their health, cry out that they will be effective in their ministries that the enemy would be bound, that they would not fall into temptation. See, Epaphras had that pastor's heart. It's a heart, I believe, that every mother and father has for their children. Except for Epaphras becomes their spiritual leader, just as Paul was their spiritual leader. Verse 2 also uses the word grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, certainly the source is from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but that word grace. Paul adopted this from the secular world, and he declares declares and uses it in a way uh, for the sinful people. He uses it to point out the unique and unmerited acts of God to save sinners through Jesus Christ. See, Paul was not only a New Testament writer to use grace, it indicated that salvation was wholly a work of God. God initiates, we simply respond, but it's God who saves us. There's a verse in Ezekiel that I love because it speaks of the very nature and character of God. There are so many like this, but it says this in Ezekiel 33, 11, Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? It's really spoken to Israel, but he declares there he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
God wants all to come to the saving knowledge of him. And it begins by you and I turning, turning from wickedness, turning to God. Well, peace, notice the word peace, peace from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Peace we often think of as harmony and agreement and in being bound together, to join, to weave. It means order instead of chaos. But I love the Hebrew word shalom. It means freedom from trouble, yes, but much, much more. It means experiencing the highest good, enjoying the very best, possessing all the inner good possible. It means wholeness and completeness and soundness. It means prosperity in the widest sense. Especially, especially spiritual prosperity. Having our souls blossom and flourish in every way. And see, the source of all this comes from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, that word shalom, even in that brief description, doesn't give the depth of the meaning of that word. Just as you tell your kids you love them, and, and sometimes those words, you, you say them, you, you know what they mean, they know what it means, but it's much more than a word can ever express. Shalom is often used in the, in the sense of uh, as a greeting, uh, when you meet somebody, shalom, when you're leaving, shalom. Uh, it, it is pregnant with meaning. Well, again, I want to call your attention to verses 3 and 4, where we see the gospel truth is, is received by faith. Verse 3 says, We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all of the saints. Faith's interesting. There's a, a lot of misconception of what faith is really intended to be. Faith is a, a gift when you stop and think about it. There's a saving faith, and that is a gift. There is the gift of faith to deal with extraordinary things, that no way in this world that you and I could ever believe it, but we're given this faith. Well, the word, again, in the Greek is pistis, is the most common term really denote in faith in the New Testament, with the underlying sense of belief and trust and conviction that is in the person of God and of Christ as the only means of salvation, the only means of forgiveness and guarantee of life. This word pistis also describes assurance in the sense of a conviction, a certain outcome in the revelation to salvation. Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 follows up on that. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. See, faith points to trusting in, acceptance of, of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And I say his gospel because oftentimes we we read in. We don't want the author's intent. We, we already come to the Bible with what we want to believe or what someone else has said. 
but all of our faith rests in a faithful God to provide our needs. And the greatest need is salvation and that relationship with Jesus Christ. Saving faith is carefully defined in Scripture as needs to be understood because there is a a dead, non-saving faith that provides a false security. So there's a saving faith and there's a, a dead faith. See, true saving faith involves repentance and obedience. See, there is no salvation. The, the, the saving faith is only one that is repentance and followed by obedience. See, repentance is that initial element in saving faith, but it cannot be dismissed as, as just simply a, another word for believing. See, the Greek word repentance literally means a, an afterthought, a, a change of mind. But biblically, it means does not stop there. See, in the New Testament, it, it speaks of a change of purpose and specifically in turning away from sin. In fact, I think 1 Thessalonians 1.9 really gives us a good example of that because notice what it says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they turned to God from their idols to serve him. Repentance and obedience, you cannot separate them. In fact, repentance in saving faith involves three elements. First, it means turning to God. Next, turning from evil and with the intent to serve God. We're servants of God, bond slaves of God. If we're not serving God in some capacity, whether it's praying or serving in a church, serving in a community with the goal to exalt and glorify God, to make his name known, then we may have a false security, a false faith. See, no change of mind can be called true repentance without these three things. It means, again, turning to God, turning away from evil with the intent to serve God. Repentance is more than remorse. A person that's repentant can be sorry about it, yes. But genuine repentance involves, again, turning to God and from evil and serving him. See, in 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says this, "For, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. See, that godly sorrow produces or leads to repentance, leading to salvation. And is not to be regretted. But there's a sorrow, a sorrow of the world that produces death. It's that false faith, that false conception that I'm saved. But there's no change in a lifestyle. A person is not a new creature in Christ. There's not a change in their life. And someone would look at their life and say, they wouldn't say they were a Christian. They wouldn't say they're like Christ. And that's a red flag if people don't see you as Christ. In my business years ago, there was this family that came in and I watched how they related to each other, how they spoke with the different salespeople I had. 
And I knew in my heart they were like Christ. They were Christians. They were believers. The world needs to see Christ in us. The world needs to hear Christ in us. And that person will always rest in the grace of God. See, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's an illustration that Charles Spurgeon used. It illustrates the importance of faith, faith object by telling of two men in a boat. They were caught in severe rapids, and they were being swept toward a waterfall. Some men on the shore tried to save them by throwing a rope. One man caught a hold of it, and he was pulled safely to the shore. The other, in panic of the moment, grabbed a hold of seemingly more substantial log that was floating by. And the man was carried downstream over the rapids and was never seen again. Faith is represented by the rope linked to the shore, connected us to Jesus Christ and safely. Good works apart from true faith is represented by the story of the log. Leads only to ruin. Well, let me show you in verse 4, we see the gospel truth results in love. And of your love for all the saints. One of the visible fruits of true saving faith is love for fellow believers. We often speak of the new commandment or the greatest commandment or the significance of, of really love. In fact, John thirteen thirty four. 35 says this, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. There's the example, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, the mark of a true believer is always marked, stamped with love. The greatest thing that people can say beside being a Christian, that, that, that you are loving, that you care genuine about people that you would deny yourself in order to esteem others higher than yourself as philippians taught in galatians 5 6 says this for in christ jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love see that faith works through love if you are a loving person God will work through you. We become his, his vessels. We are his tools in his hand to reach this world with the gospel truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. There's no way the Father but through him and the world needs to hear and see Jesus Christ in our lives. Look with me and Verse 5 of our text, we see the gospel truth rest in hope. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of what you heard before the word of truth of the gospel. Notice the, the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
I find such great comfort in that. Assurance, I know that one day that God will take me out of this world to close my eyes and this world I'll open my eyes up with Jesus. And that's true for every believer. Those believers around me that, that have closed their eyes in this world, they've already gone to be with the Lord. Their, their spirits are with them and one day will be united. Well, there's something else I want to call your attention to. It's in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. You'll recognize the verse. And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, the greatest of these, notice he says is love. This is a triad, faith, hope, and love. You'll find triads together all through the Bible. You cannot separate love, hope, and faith. You'll find them again and again and again. And just as we mentioned, faith works through love. See, when all three of these terms uh, appear together and in, in, in focus in a passage, it, it often is seen in, in social manifestation of the gospel. Let me show you in First Thessalonians, again, 1.3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and Father. In any case, faith and love flow out of hope. When you have that assurance of hope that you're going to be with the Lord one day, you can't help but love God more and more and love those around you. And faith moves you to act. Faith moves you to live differently because you know that truth. You know that truth that will set you free. Pilate asks, uh, probably one of the most remembered lines in the Bible, what is truth in John eighteen thirty eight? Truth defines Christ. And is therefore at the heart of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Hebrew expression most often translated truth is the word emet. The word comes from a root meaning, aman, to confirm, to support. It's often translated as, as faithfulness, at times even steadfastness. The word amen, which means truly or verily or just Amen, or amini, they say. It all boils down to truth. When you say amen, you're agreeing, you're confirming the truth. Notice with me Ephesians 1.13. In him you have trusted after you heard, notice the word of truth, and the gospel of your salvation. It is the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, is what the world needs to hear and see. It's not only a, a message of truth, but it's the gospel of salvation that you're bringing. It's the only words a person can trust in when they come to know who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and they recognize that there's separation from him. This then becomes the good news, the gospel of their salvation. I like John eight thirty two, because it says this, that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Isn't that true in our lives? When you come to know the truth, when you come to know the, the darkness of sin, the destiny of, 
of sin, the wages of sin. We no longer have to sin. Our eyes have been opened up, and that truth has made you free. You sin as much as you want. You just don't want to sin because of what Jesus Christ has done. You understand the cost, what he endured for you and me. You know that that sin separates you from God, and you want nothing to be between you and him. Well, there's another thing I want to call your attention to. It's in verse 6 there. The gospel truth reaches the world which has come to you, and it is also in all of the world. Now stop and think for a second. When this is being written, it's about 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection and and the day of Pentecost. And the, the word of God, this word of salvation, the truth of salvation is already spread from Jerusalem to Syria to Asia Minor and Greece and Italy and likely to Egypt and North Africa and Persia as well. As we continue through the word, you'll you'll see that. The word has gone forth, and God's word does not come back void. And those that love the Lord keep his commandments, and the Great Commission takes this word of truth, the gospel of salvation out, that people will come to know Jesus Christ. It may be for you, you you are giving money to help support missions. Maybe you're spending, laboring in prayer for missionaries, people that you don't know, but the gospel has spread to the whole world. In this context, what it's talking about, what was called the known world at that time. And even today, there are angels bringing the gospel to people in places where there's no missionaries. And then God moves on the hearts of people for, and, and, and he leads them to a place that they had never thought of. And he leads them there because there's someone seeking the truth, the truth that will set them free. See, the gospel truth also produces fruit, and that's in verse 6 as well. And it's constantly bringing forth fruit. And it is also among you since the day that you heard it. See, Paul turns to the tension. There's a power in the gospel. The truth of the gospel is effective. It's bearing fruit. It's growing. The gospel changes lives. It changes destiny. The gospel continues to produce harvest after harvest. And certainly we understand that when we come to Matthew 13, verses 3 through 8, there's a parable, the the sower and the seed. And the seed is, again, the word of God in its good seed. But when you go through that parable, you learn that not every soil was prepared and ready. And we also find that in a spiritual sense, not every heart is ready to hear. But God's word does not come back void. Now, Again, seeing someone come in the kingdom, it's important that we go and fulfill God's word. But salvation doesn't depend upon us. Let me show you. 1 Corinthians 3, 7. So then, neither he who plants is anything or he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Our part is just to faithfully go. Just bring the word. 
just seize the opportunity. It, it doesn't mean being rude. It doesn't mean being nasty. What's important, number one, is that we determine to be right, to be polite, and be bold in love. And then allow God to be God and bring the increase. Now, when there's an increase, when a person is born again, 1 Peter 2, 2 reminds us, like newborn babies, they, they'll long for the pure milk of the word so that by that, they'll grow in respect to salvation. So, so it doesn't mean that people are made perfect. It just now tells us that they've been set into the body of Christ. They're justified. That's their position. And they're being made holy day by day. Now, our responsibility is just to bring the word. Second is that is, is to, to grow and mature in our own lives to long for that pure milk of the word, to to go on to the bread and the meat of the word and learn how to apply it and live it out in our lives. Now, we're called to be fruitful. Now, again, that the idea that I'm trying to bring across is the gospel truth produces fruit. When people see your life is changed, they'll listen to you when you share that gospel See, we're to be fruitful, multiply. There is a part that, that that we are to do. And just as, again, that God was speaking to Adam and Eve in the garden, listen in Genesis one twenty eight, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God wants us to be responsible. He's given us good works before the foundation he's prepared for us. And we are to be faithful and follow and dependent upon him just as they were to be physically do these things. Spiritually, we're to be fruitful. We're to multiply we're to expand the, the kingdom of God. Well, also in verse 6, we see the gospel truth is rooted in grace. And it says, and knew the grace of God in truth. Or another translation uses the word and understood the grace of God in truth. It is so wonderful to understand the grace of God. See, the grace of God always centers on the gospel message. The truth of our condition and the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for everyone who will call upon his name. Romans 5.2 says this, Through whom you also have access by faith into grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Every believer has access by faith into this grace, and we stand by this grace, and we rejoice in this hope, and we have that assurance. See, the gospel truth is rooted in grace. God does the work. We simply respond to what God has done for you and me. Well, finally, in our text today, we see verses 7 and 8. We see the gospel truth is reported by people. Let me show you in verse 7. And as you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister in Christ Jesus on your behalf, who also declared us your love in the Spirit. See, to call Epaphras his fellow servant, it's important in several reasons. One, it highlights his lordship. He was simply 
a servant, a bond slave, just like Paul. And Jesus Christ was the Lord of his life. Let me ask you the question, is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? Are you still trying to be the Lord of your life? Now, this title identifies both Paul himself and Epaphras as merely just instruments in the hands of a powerful God. You know, I like that because, you know, it depends upon God. We're just his tools. We're just his vessel, his, his conduit. God works through us. He pours his love into our hearts, and through faith he works in this community, works abroad in the world when we travel. It should be noted that that fellow servant can, can serve um, affirmation of one's status and even authority, especially when one whom they're serving is seated at the right hand of God. You have been given all authority. Jesus Christ said all authority has been given. We're given authority to go and speak that word of God. And if someone rejects it, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting Jesus Christ. Now remember again, as I mentioned, Romans 5.5. 5. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. See, love is infectious, it's contagious. God is love, and because God's love, he, he has to love. He's created us that he can lavish us with his love. So this biblical love, when he pours his love into our hearts, it is contagious. It should affect everyone around us unless we quench the Spirit. Love is just that byproduct of a, a new life in Jesus Christ because every believer has that love poured into his hearts. Christians have no excuse not to be loving because Christian love is a, a decision to act in the best interest of others. I understand there's times that, yes, you don't like people, you don't like their actions, but love will motivate you to reach out, to bring the gospel truth to those that do not even know they're blinded by the God of this world. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you for your word that is timeless, and at times it's it's convicting. Thank you for that sensitivity to your spirit. Help us to be obedient and walk in all your ways. And all God's people said, Amen.